John, uh, we're welcoming in 2023 with the two words we brought out 2022, and that's Carlos Correa. Yeah, obviously, this is the big story, a terrific all-around talent. I think one of the best defensive players in the game and one of the most clutch players, which really should help this Mets team. That was the issue at the end of last year anyway, so we shall see what happens here. Big story. Yeah, big story. We're going to see in the future if he actually ends up with the Mets or not, if that name shows up on the dotted line. John and I will talk all about Carlos Correa, and we'll be joined by Cameron Mabin, where we'll talk about the Yankees, baseball, and his career. If you stick with us on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. John, uh, we begin the new year where we left off the old year, which was uh, we don't know where Carlos Correa is playing baseball uh, in 2023 and moving forward. Uh, I mean, just a quick, quick recap. I'm sure our fan base who listens to us knows. But, you know, he signed with the Giants in mid-December on a 13-year, $350 million deal. They were about to have a press conference for him. The press conference was called off. There was concern the Giants had about a long-term injury from 2014 when Correa played at single A with his uh, lower right leg, his ankle. The Mets swooped in. You broke the story overnight on December 21st. So we're talking about two weeks ago now when we're broadcasting this, John. 12 years at $315 million, and yet the physical is an issue again with Correa. As we sit here, he is not an officially signed player. What do we know? What do you think? Well, as you said, it's been almost two weeks uh, since they came to that agreement when Steve Cohn was in Hawaii and Scott Boris, the agent, was in San Francisco when the press conference for the Giants was canceled. They got the deal done in four or five hours, mostly by text, maybe some calls. And, uh, you know, I think it's obviously been a long time uh, since they came to that agreement. I wouldn't read anything negative into that. We don't know for sure how it's going to end up. But I do think it's probably going to be difficult to separate at this point. Just hard to see either side really backing away from this now. I know there are teams calling about Correa, but uh, it's hard to imagine he can get that same deal now after two with snafus with the physical at this late date or into the new year. So and I, we all know that or assume that he wants to be a Met. We heard the stories about how excited he was uh, when they came to that agreement, how he tackled Scott Boris in the hotel out of excitement. And uh, by the same token, the Mets also, uh, while well, we've only heard from Steve Cohn, and I did talk to him that night, it was about three in the morning, and he expressed, I would say, extreme excitement about uh, Carlos Correa and the deal. And he said, we only needed one thing and this is it. You know, it's just hard to imagine either side really backing away now. I know it's taken a while. I know that uh, fans are growing impatient and you never know how it's going to turn out. Don't want to make any guarantees, but uh, I still think he will wind up with the Mets. 
Yeah, uh, John, I, I I assume he'll wind up with the Mets, but to me, it feels like, obviously, from the quotes that Steve Cohn gave you, and I mean, I'll, I'll read what he said. He said, we needed one more thing, and this is it. This was important. This put us over the top. That's what he told you that night. So obviously, the Mets wanted him very badly. But to me, the guy who is in a bad spot here is Correa. I, the Mets don't want to walk away from him. This was the cherry on top of a offseason. They were going to play him at third base next to his friend Francisco Lindor. If they don't have a signed contract with this player, he goes back out into the wild where two teams now uh, would have not been comfortable giving him the long-term deal. And clearly he forgive the cliche, wants the cake and wants to eat it too, right? He wants the money, the long-term deal. And it seems pretty much that he wants a big market team. He doesn't just want to play any place. He wants to play with a perennial contender. He's been one of the better postseason players. So I think he's in like a bit of a dire situation here. Do you disagree with that? Well, I would never call it dire. I mean, remember last year when he turned down the $275 million from Detroit and ended up signing the three-year deal with the two opt-outs, and, you know, a lot of people at the time were critical of it and it ended up, we think it'll end up working out for him. He did make $35 million in his first year, opted out. We'll see exactly what comes of this. But, you know, he's now made two deals for over $300 million. I wouldn't say there's a guarantee, certainly, of another one at this date, as we mentioned. And he is in a tough spot. Uh, but part of the reason he's in that tough spot is the negotiation with the Mets and the fact that it's taken a while here. So I think, I don't want to say the Mets are obligated to finish this deal, but I think they probably feel some pressure beyond the fact that Steve Cohn at least was very excited and presumably others very excited to have him on the team. Uh, they may feel a little bit of pressure to finalize this, to get this done and figure it out and not put them in a bad spot. And I don't, you know, I don't know if that's the good, out of the goodness of their heart. Maybe they're very altruistic people. Maybe that's part of it. But, you know, if you put somebody in a bad spot, there's always, you know, room for some disagreement beyond this, you know, whether it be grievance or whatever. And I don't think anybody wants that because obviously Steve Cohn and Scott Boris have developed a fantastic relations, working relationship to this point with the Verlander deal, the Nimmo deal, and now this deal. And, uh, you know, I, I think they'd like to wrap this up uh, for their own sake as as well as his. Yeah, I, I get it. I'm sure you don't want to make an enemy of the most powerful agent. Conversely, I don't think the most powerful agent wants to make an enemy out of the human ATM that now owns the Mets and is willing to do this. And let's let's not forget, the Mets failed Kumar Raka, who was a Scott Boris client, on his physical. And that didn't stop them from coming back and signing Scherzer and Nimmo and and coming to agreement with Correa. And one of the things I think about here, John, is, look, will the fact that Steve Cohn was quoted with you that night, like, will that bear some obligation to the Mets? You know, use the word obligation. Maybe conversely, I mean, the Giants went as far as to have a press conference called. And when they kind of when there was not literally a, a name signed on a contract, Scott Boris wheeled out of that and did another deal. So like the fact that you have an agreement, I think you need a deal. Like I think you need name on paper. And without that, I continue to feel like he's in the tougher spot. Does that force him to put some language into this to protect the Mets to some degree? I think Scott once did that with Pudge Rodriguez and the Tigers about his back. You know, obviously the player doesn't want to do that. He wants to have a fully guaranteed contract. 
But I just think sending yourself back out into the market after two big market teams had real doubt about you would put him in a very adverse position. Well, I'll say that. I don't, this, I don't, I don't know if those quotes change the spot that they're in. I mean, it's now been almost two weeks, and obviously the landscape may have changed and to, to its detriment. I will say we do know that the Twins had offered 10 years at around $285 million. They have not spent that money yet. Uh, they're still kind of hanging around, it seems. He does probably have a backup plan that isn't that terrible. You know, I don't want to ever say anyone's in a dire spot when they potentially could get, I know it's not $315 million and maybe prefer to be in New York. You know, we all assume that as we are New Yorkers. That isn't always the case, but we assume that. I, I wouldn't call it a dire spot. I, I still think he'll have other possibilities. But as I said, I think both sides, I, I wouldn't put a you know, percentage on who feels more pressure, but I, I feel both sides uh, feel some pressure to get this done. It leaves Correa as one of the most interesting people in the sport as we open up in 2023. Do you like this transition, John, to the little game we're going to play, which is we're going to count backwards three to one on now that we're in a new year, we're about six weeks away from spring training, uh, opening a little earlier because of the WBC being played this year. By the way, about a third of the Met roster is more is going to the WBC, including Correa, if uh if he ever does sign with the Mets. So why don't we do this, John? Num- number three, who's your third most interesting person going into 2022 and why? Well, I, you know, I'm going to say Aaron Judge at this point. You know, he's hit 62 home runs, set the record last year. I don't want to say there's added pressure because he did that, but probably there is. Not as much pressure as there was last year going into last year when he didn't take the $213.5 million, as we've noted probably a thousand times on this show, but on himself, won the bet, ended up with – $360 million. You know, I don't think the money adds pressure, but just the performance. I think he's wants to show uh, again and help the team. He's a team guy uh, that he can do something special again. Can he hit 62 home runs again? I wouldn't put that on anybody. Been done once in the American League in 100 years so or more. To me, he's an interesting guy, even though he's back with the Yankees, same team. You know, somewhat similar money to what we expect, a little bit over as everybody went over this year. But, uh, you know, let's just see if he can come close to it. You know, obviously Maris never came close to 61 home runs again, but ended up with a a very good career. I think we're expecting uh, much more from Judge, to be fair about, to be honest about it. Yeah, you know, I wanted to put a Yankee on this list and I didn't put Judge on. Who I put on was Oswald Peraza and Anthony Volpe. We just have lived through the two probably best shortstop free agent classes in history. And the Yankees abstained from both because they believe so heavily in these two players. John, I think you made a point that we are going to have to think a lot about going into spring training into the season. Aaron Judge can have a great year in 2023. The likelihood that he repeats anything close to 2022 is dim. So, They're going to need other players to compensate. Remember what the second half of the 2022 season looked like. It was Aaron Judge and the Pips. The rest of the team stumped, and Judge carried them. They can't do that for 162 games. Was the postseason the beginning of seeing a better Harrison Bader? Maybe that's it. Does DJ LeMayu stay healthy for 130 games and play like he did in May, June, and July before he hurt his foot? I think the best way for them to get better is the Yankees need to be right about these two guys again because they've just ignored free agent classes. I'm fascinated to see, are Peraza and Volpe good? 
The last time they trusted a rookie shortstop, it was a guy named Jeter, and they won a championship. The team they can't beat, the Astros, trusted a rookie shortstop, Jeremy Pena, last year. He was the MVP of the ALCS in the World Series. Who are Oswald Peraza and Anthony Volpe? Yeah, I'll just add one thing about the second half, and you're right. I mean, the rest of the team stunk, as you mentioned. Uh, Judge carried them. I do think they are better than that, obviously. LeMahieu, very tough guy, was severely injured. Uh, you know, if he's better, that makes a big difference. Rizzo, never mentioned it, another tough guy. Had some moments, but he was injured, I do believe, a lot of the time. You know, Stanton, uh, he looked like he was about half himself at one point. Uh, so, I, you know, I do think the injuries uh, impacted, as we know, in the first half, they were one of the greatest first half teams ever. And I'm not going to say they're that team, but they're not that second half team either. They're all going to get hurt again. So the young guys better play well. Who's your number two guy? Well, I, sorry to be provincial. I'm going to pick a Met, in this case, uh, Francisco Alvarez. Uh, we shall see. Now, the Mets did sign Narvaez to catch. Uh, so take some pressure off of the catching for Alvarez. But uh, they would like a right-handed bat. There was a DH now. I know that uh, uh, Scherzer, when he saw him, when he went down to rehab, thought uh, the world of his hitting ability. And, you know, if he is a big stick, that will really, really help the Mets. They were uh, middle of the pack in terms of power this year. Obviously, we still expect Correa to be a Met, so we expect them to be better, but they could really be dynamic if Francisco Alvarez is what people think he is. Yeah, it's interesting how much our lists are alike, John, and you went with a Yankee first, a Mets second. I'm doing, and you went with a young prospect like I did with the two Yankees. I'm going with a Met. I'm really taking person the most interesting person far out. I think Steve Cohn is fascinating. I'm just curious what he's willing to do next. We know between payroll and luxury tax, if the Correa deal gets done, they're going to approach a half a billion. That's $500 million in total outlay for the team. Here's what I find interesting. So far, we've seen that side of him. What we haven't seen is public criticism. And I think once you throw this kind of money into the middle, what is the expectation of Steve Cohn? The portrait of him as a financier is not of a patient human being. I wonder what we see if suddenly the Mets are, say, 35 and 35, 70 games into the season with a $500 million outlay. Maybe we won't get there. Maybe they'll dominate the NLEs this year and run away with it. I am curious to see what Steve Cohn does if this kind of payroll doesn't perform? Well, we all, we both grew up in the Steinbrenner era. I saw a little more of it than you. So we're always wondering about public criticism. But uh, looking at the history of it, Steinbrenner was a, a rare owner to really consistently criticize the players who were not performing. And we can, you and I could probably name 30 of them now off the top of our heads. You know, I, there's no reason to think that Steve Cohen's going to do that. But you know, obviously, he's been a boss a long time, and he has high expectations. He had them going in. He spent a lot of money. You know, I wouldn't rule it out. It certainly would spice things up for for you and me. Yeah. So who's your number one guy, John, interesting going into this? Well, I, I guess I took the most obvious guy is Correa, and we've already spoken about him. Certainly going to be a lot of eyes on him when he gets to presumably, or at least we think, Mets camp or whatever camp he ends up in. And to see exactly how he performs now, the doctors are kind of taking a crystal ball of this. You know, he is eight years in and he hasn't had any injuries or even any treatment related to that eight-year-old injury with the near the ankle and the right leg. So I don't know that they expect anything to happen anytime soon. I think it was the 12-year deal that probably 
the doctors were concerned about who did look at this, but uh, I do think all eyes will be on Carlos Correa, who is a magnetic personality. I think he really, he really is, and uh, you know, I think it'll add certainly a lot of interest and intrigue uh, to our local baseball scene, which should be fascinating once again. You know, I thought I picked the obvious guy, John, and it's Shohei Otani. I'm wondering, you know, if the Angels aren't in it. Did I just say the name of a guy who there's going to be a bidding war for in July at the trade deadline within the next 12 months? He is going to be a free agent. We've all all wondered, what does it mean? Last year, he hit like Austin Riley and pitched like Carlos Rodon. What would it mean in the free agency market uh, to have that kind of player out there? I think we've almost become steel to it. Just how special what we are. I just want to tell you what my favorite statistic is for this player from 2022 as we head into 2023. It's about runners in scoring position on both sides of the ball. He essentially faced the same number of guys with runners in scoring position as he batted. It was 120 to 130. As a hitter, this guy was second in the majors to judge. He had a 12-13 OPS with runners in scoring position, including Major League High 775 slugging percentage against... 476 OPS with runners in scoring position. It's almost an 800-point difference between pitching and hitting with the same number of plate appearances on both sides. I just can't get enough of the guy, and I think we're going to be overwhelmed between what he does on the field, the fact that the Angels are being sold, what does that mean? Is somebody going to try to sign him? Do they try to trade him in July? And literally the most fascinating free agent case in the history of free agency upcoming. Well, not only fascinating, it'll be the biggest number. And you mentioned uh, Riley and Rodone being the comps. And, you know, I'm a numbers guy. So you add up those two contracts. It's $374 million, still a record. I don't even think that gets close to what Otani will get as a free agent. You know, we saw Judge get 360. We saw Correa for at least a little while get 350. 374 isn't even close. Not only is Otani one of the best hitters and one of the best pitchers and one of the fastest guys in baseball, he's also a marketing um, icon unto himself. Uh, not that Judge isn't. I mean, Judge, I would say in that area is probably number two uh, in terms of interest and worldwide appeal. But uh, Otani, uh, you know, has two countries riveted. And, you know, I did a column in the Post about how much money he'll get as a free agent. And I, I still don't believe that the Angels will really trade him. I also think they did a very good job this winter, and they'll probably contend or at least think they're contending halfway through. So I'm not expecting a trade. I'm ex just expecting uh, the free agent deal to come next. And I had a lot of people say it be we'll begin with a five, and I don't doubt that either. I think he's going to get over $500 million and probably deserves it. I don't know how much he makes off the field, but uh, I do think he makes a lot for a team. Yeah. You know, one of the things the Angels did so well in the offseason is somehow they got him to sign for one year at $30 million. I thought he should have gone into a room. I think it would have been the most fascinating arbitration case ever as he's arguing, hey, to your point, this is what Rodon makes. This is what Riley makes. This is what I should make. We're not going to get that. Um, we're going to talk. You mentioned Aaron Judge. I'm sure we're going to talk about Aaron Judge and Carlos Rodon, and also his current career as a broadcaster with the former player Cameron Maybin, who joins us next on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman. Hey, 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We're back on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman, and we're so pleased to be joined by 15-year major leaguer, 10 different teams, Cameron Maben, but now you're on the most important team, Cameron. I'm going to put you on the spot right away. You're on the MLB Network team. Why don't you explain to our fans how much of a better teammate I am than Heyman? That, that, that I think, is the place to start. You know, the, the the tough part about it is it's like those two guys that you have on your team, I call them off-the-field friends. You know, and both you guys will be off-the-field friends. And, you know, I'll probably be telling you that you're my guy, you know, when I'm with you, and I'll be telling Johnny that he's my guy. So, you know, it, it's, it's a close running. It's a close running, but we've had some good conversations. Are you doing that with Jack Curry and Mike Kay at Yes as well? Because I was going to make it all four of us who was the best teammate of all. You know what? I'm, I'm going to go with you right now since you text me first to bring me on, and then everybody else is a close second. How about that? Cameron, why don't I a serious baseball question? Kind of uh, what was the biggest player in 2022 who was Aaron Judge? And I do think you're in an interesting spot. You were his teammate in 2019. You saw him up close this year with Yes. I'm wondering about Encore. This is a guy who didn't feel pressure. It didn't seem in 2022 playing for the money and playing for everything that goes with the Yankees. What do you think knowing him, teammate, again, broadcaster, will he feel some need to justify 360 million and 62 homers by doing something in 2023? Yeah, that's a great question because I know one thing I think, you know, is one of the toughest things to do as a player is to perform at a high level in your free agent year or whatever sport it is, you know, it's only natural as a human being to want to, you know, have a career best season or excel, uh, you know, a, a great season. So it's easy to put pressure on yourself. I, I, I did it towards the end of my San Diego Padre contract uh, when I was with the Angels. I came out and I pressed it. So it's extremely difficult to have, you know, that type of year that you want to have going into free agency. So I think now, I think it'll be a lot easier for him to come in, relax, uh, and just go out and play his game. He, he got everything that he deserved. Uh, as well as the captain, name the captain of the team, which I think was great for the Yankees to do as an organization. Um, and I've said this, and it might have been an unpopular opinion earlier this year, but I said, if it wasn't for age, if you ask me, who, who would I take to start a team? I keep saying Aaron Judge. And I know people say, Mike, you have Mike Trout, you play with him. And I think Mike Trout is arguably one of the greatest players I've ever played with or have seen, but it's the intangibles. It's the things that there are no stat for. And that's character. That's leadership. That's, uh, pulling the team together when things aren't quite going right. Uh, that's stepping up in front of the camera when you need a voice to take accountability and speak for the team's struggles and woes. Um, and that's one thing I think that separates Aaron Judge. So for him, I think it's going to be even easier now that he got what he deserved. And I think he'll continue to lead that team like he did last season. Hey, Cameron, it's it's great to have you on. And I really appreciate how diplomatic you are saying those nice things about Joel. And we both know you and I are really much closer than you and Joel. I want to ask you about this winter. Obviously, uh, you've got not just the Yes job, you have the MLB Network job. So uh, looking more broadly at baseball and all the contracts and this winter, you played 15 years, a little bit too soon to get the really big bucks. But what, what did you think seeing all these contracts come into any one or two of them really stand out to you as 
really eye-popping and, you know, just generally what you thought about this winter, which turned out to be a wild one? You know, that's a great question, John. And I think for me, what I was happy to see and, and, and kind of elated me was it almost took me back to about seven, eight years ago, uh, you know, rest in peace, Michael Weiner, when he was the the players president. You know, one thing that players used to used to get was yeah, used to get paid for what they had done. And you see a lot of these contracts. I know there are some projections behind them, but for me, it was almost going back seven, eight years ago, looking at, hey, this guy got this deal because his track record was pretty good. You know, and it wasn't so much about him being a 30 year old, a 31 year old, a 32 year old or, or whatever the age was. It's OK. What has he done? He's been extremely consistent in his career, and he's also found a, a space now, uh, whoever that player might be, where he's found some consistency, some things that really help him at work to keep him productive. So I was, was extremely uh, excited. I actually told my wife the other day, I said, hey, babe, you know, I'm in great shape. You know, my 15-year-old, he committed to do. I'm like, honey, you know, a DH in every league? I mean, I can still outrun half the league. But she said, you know what? You're doing a great job on TV, so stick with it. Keep learning from great guys like yourself. But I was excited to see some of these deals, you know, get done, especially for guys who are platoon guys, you know, and, and guys who are back in the rotation guys, you know, getting really fit, what I call fair deals. Yeah, well, maybe you could still play your 10th pick, I think, in the 2005 draft. The 11th pick is Andrew McCutcheon. He's still out there playing. So we, we, we could get you back on the field. I wonder, again, if I could use your combination of – that you came to the Yankees in 2019 and you were around the team so much in 2022. It ended very poorly, obviously. Uh, they were swept out of the playoffs by the Astros in the ALCS. And I think the other thing that went along with that was there was a lot of harsh treatment by the fan base, right? There was a lot of booing at home. And we have a player in Carlos Rodon coming here. And there's probably some, there's no questions about his talent. It's about health and temperament being able to handle this. I wonder what you think about that transition to the 2023 Yankees now with everything, the uh, social media, the fan base, et cetera. Is this as big a bear as we're led to believe, or do you think that's an overrated uh, element? I don't think it's overrated at all. I think when you put those pinstripes on it, there is a, a level of expectation that not only comes from the organization, but from the fan base. You, you know, there was a point last year in that playoff where, you know, Aaron Judge was booed. And we talked about a guy who had a historic season, uh, essentially, in my eyes, carried the Yankees to the playoffs with what he was able to do. It's hard to play in those, in that uniform. I always say that, you know, it either brings out the best in guys or kind of exposes guys on who they are. But I think this guy, uh, Carlos, is, is special. Uh, I faced him early when he came in the league, and I, and I continue to say he's that guy, you know, we talk about high RPMs on the fastball. He has that ball, that he that, that ability to pitch at the top of the zone. I call it the trap ball, a pitch that looks really good, but you can't do anything with. Um, it's a trap. So he's a guy that can, you know, take a bat out of a lineup's hand. And I think that's what the Yankees needed. And I think his stuff will put him in a position to where he won't have to worry about the booze and the Yankees fan as much. I think his stuff will get him through those difficult days, especially when you, you add him alongside Garrett Cole, uh, Nestor Cortez. I think – having Frankie Montas back healthy is going to be really, really a real big sleeper that people may not be thinking about because he, you know, was kind of injured at the end of the year. And I think the Yankees try to get him back. We Severino, they did a great job of managing Severino last year to make sure he was ready for the playoffs. So I think when you put him in that rotation, he's not coming in where he has to be the guy, you know, but he is a guy that really bolsters 
and really strengthens this rotation for sure. Cameron, uh, you know, I want to follow up on that a bit. Uh, you, you played for the Yankees. Now, of course, you played for 10 teams, so you have quite a sampling there. Uh, you had really arguably your best year with the Yankees. I think you had an OPS plus of around 130. Uh, so you certainly performed in New York. What was it like for you as a player in New York? And why do you think you were able to thrive as a Yankee player? Well, I tell people all the time, as a kid, you know, you have this vision of what it's like to play in the big leagues one day. You think it's, you know, it's stars, it's glitz, it's glamour. And, you know, it, it's all of these things that that come with being a professional baseball player. And then you get into it and realize that it's reality. You know, it's, this is a hard sport we do. It's not always, uh, you know, a lot of beautiful days. The travel is not always the best. But when, well, when I got to the Yankee, you know, I was always a guy, even coming up, I, I really thrived in big moments, big situations. Those were things that I wanted to be in, and those are the moments that I wanted to be around. So for me, uh, with the expectations of the fans, the expectations of an organization that is never really in the rebuild mode, we're trying to win now, um, it brought out the best in me. You know, when I had the opportunity, when a couple guys went down, uh, I was a guy who always, you know, had to ask myself, and it was from my father, are you hurt or are you injured? So I'm going to play through different things, and I'm going to try to take advantage of the opportunity that I was given. And, you know, when I was there, I was on kind of that NBA almost 10-day contract sort of thing, you know, with Aaron Judge being banged up and Stanton being banged up at the same time. But both of those guys coming back, I had to play my way into a, uh, you know, a guaranteed roster spot. So I think for me, and, and I say this like, a, like a, a, a Bader, you know, bringing him into to center field, he's the guy who's going to thrive in pinstripes. I don't think we've seen the best – uh, you know, Bader yet, because this is a guy that the atmosphere, the fans, the moment is going to elevate his play. And I think certain guys are just built for that. I always tell, uh, especially young reporters, the blessing of what we have is access and the ability to ask questions. And if we're smart, we get to listen to smart people talk. And I do want to take our fans to a conversation you and I had. We were literally driving out, I believe, to the ballpark in Philadelphia together for, uh, was it game three or four of the World Series? And I was blown away by you talking about the arc of how much information, you know, John was mentioning you got better as you went along, Yankee year, great, et cetera. The amount of information arc from the beginning of your career to the end of what you were given to prepare for a singular major league game. I think people use words like analytics and film and stuff and don't fully understand some of the stuff I wonder, like, the whole conversation was about 40 minutes. Can we get it down to, you know what I'm interested in? What the, I'm interested in the iPad. Talk to me about the arc of that. Absolutely. So, so again, and, and I'll make it kind of, you know, quick. You know, when you come in early, you know, when I came in early, you know, a lot of veterans, Gary Sheffield, Maglio Ordonez, uh, Pudge Rodriguez, these are guys that I came in. A lot of it was feel. You know, what do you feel? You know, how do you feel? What are you feeling? You know? And then as you continue to progress, as, as, as analytics grow, as uh, video gets better and better, I mean, it was incredible to see. And I, and, I, and I put it this way, why some of the teams that I played with were, I want to say, bad or not as competitive and why some of those good teams were as competitive as they were. And, you know, I, you think about some teams, you know, as you go home, you know, and you get a scout report, you have a, you have a, a, a hitter's meeting, you go over pitchers, and you come over a plan of what they do well and what you're going to see and what they've done in the last three or four starts. But then you also have teams that say, okay, hey, here's what he's done. And, hey, take this, this information home. Take this iPad home. Take this information home and, and take a look. You know, we'll show you the things that the human element comes into play when guys do things, when the moment gets big and 
guys start to do little tips and little tales that really kind of allows you to be prepared and ready for the situation. And for me to see that, it was almost, you know, putting me in the mindset of, you know, hey, hold on, wait a minute. For years, I thought that this team was just really good, and they do. They had great players. But it's about the information, the people that they're putting around you to make the game as simple as possible. And I think that's where the art, you know, definitely was. And, and like I said, getting towards the back end to see the amount of information, quality information, not too much to keep it simplified, whether it's a telltale on a pitcher, whether it's a glove, whether it's his mouth, whether it's his shoulder, whatever it may be, to have that confidence going into the game the next day or through a series or that nasty bullpen guy that you might see that is extremely dominant on righties and know that, hey, I can lay off that pitch if I see it, if he gives me a tail early in the count because I know I can't do anything with it anyway. And it just kind of sets you up for situations where you really can have success. And for me, it was mind-blowing, you know, to, to, to be a part of that and just realize that, hey, more organizations are just doing a better job of doing their homework, whether it's having extra guys in a department that watch video, that go get information. Your only job is to look at this, to search for this. We don't need you to tell me anything else but this. So for me, it was extremely, you know, uh, exciting to, to have that information. I was the guy who's always been a student of the game, wanting to get better. And having people show me how to really, truly use video was really amazing. And you would go home with an iPad and it would like, for example, they might say, hey, with runners on base, the guy doesn't realize it, but like he opens his mouth when he throws his breaking ball, like stuff like that. And they give you an iPad loaded with like, say, 10 pitches in a row where he did it so you could have confidence that he did it. This is what we're talking about. Right? Absolutely. And from and again, you know, now we're in a wave of uh, smart pads and iPhones and smart devices. So, you know, most teams get these things. They get to take these iPad homes, but not every organization is giving you the right information. You might have your video in there. You might have the pitch the next day, but. Yeah, certain organizations that showing you, hey, when this guy gets runners on base, hey, he can't help it. This is what he do. Human nature takes over and he's going to go to this. If you see it, trust it. And there's a trust that you can build and a confidence that you can build when you see that as a team. You know, you believe that it's one thing for a guy to come back and say, hey, I think he's doing this with the glove. I think he's moving the glove. It's like, dude, are you sure? You know, are you are you really sure that's what you're saying? But it's nothing to go home and say, hey, did you see that last night? Uh, you got that? OK, all right. I did, too. All right. Cool. Let me know if that's if that's it when you get up there. Boom, boom, boom. So for me, it's been going on for years when I got into the big leagues as a as a 20 year old, uh, you know, guys relaying signs and trying to give that competitive advantage. But it's just it's amazing, you know, the level of awareness that certain organizations have that that just it, it makes sense. Why wouldn't you? Hey, Cameron, I want to ask you about your entire career. We've mentioned a couple of things. Joel mentioned that uh, you had a 15 year career and you you just mentioned you came up when you're 20, which is obviously quite young. You were part of that 2005 draft, that first round, which was star-studded. I know there was a time not that long ago where only half the first-rounders really even made it to the major leagues. Uh, but I want to ask you, you know, you did play 15 years, and you were a very productive MLB player. Uh, but I know going in as a 10th overall pick in a very star-studded class – you know what, and, and I know we're not too far away from your retirement. You're still a very young man at age 35. We might take more distance to really get a pers good perspective on this, but I thought I'd ask, how do you look back at your entire career? I mean, obviously you were a prodigy. You hit a home run off of Roger Clemens, and I think your second game. How, do, how did you feel your career stacked up to perhaps your own expectations? Well, honestly, uh, that's a great question, John. And honestly, 
I'm I'm at I'm at a point now where I'm more at peace with it. I'm I'm getting to be more at peace with it. And I say that because when I looked at, you know, where I thought I would be, I thought I would be a, a, a multi-game all-star. I thought I would, uh, you know, definitely impact the game a lot more than I did again, but I was extremely productive on every team that I ever played for. And I say that being, and it's one thing now that I try to, you know, convey to my son. I think one thing that got in my way is that, and, and again, I appreciate my father so much for always trying to instill in me to be coachable, uh, to listen to people. But that is one thing that got in my way. At 20 years old, when you get to the big leagues, you know, certain certain situations have certain people around you. And I had people that when I got called to the big leagues after, you know, hitting six home runs in seven days in double A, you get to the big leagues and they tell you, hey, why are you so low? Why are you so why are you so crouched down on your legs? You're six foot four. You need to stand up tall. You need to hit this way. And, you know, one thing for me, just being honest, I never wanted to be the young kid that didn't listen or the young kid that didn't know it all. Because you get that a lot in, you know, any job that you do. You have older people that have been around. And if you sometimes respectfully disagree, you you know, you're labeled as the guy that don't that doesn't listen. Uh, so for me, what happened, I think I was so athletic, John, that I was able to try you know, when I went to the Marlins, they told me, hey, we just got rid of Juan Pierre. We want you to be our leadoff guy. So they had me, you know, where Detroit told me to get up out of my, you know, wide. I was kind of wide, like Albert Pujols, foot up, foot down, Rudy Jaramillo approach. It was simple. I had it my whole high school career. And then they told me, uh, you know, Lauren McClendon said, you need to stand up tall. You, you're, you're, too, you're too tall. What are you doing? And I just, oh, yes, sir. Whatever you say, coach, you know. And then I get to the Marlins and it's, hey, you, you need to get down close to the zone. You need to be tight. We want you to be slappy and be like Juan Pierre. Okay, coach, if that's going to keep me in the big league. So I went through a lot of different swing changes and things that I tried to do that coaches try to, you know, ask me to do because I never wanted to be the the uncoachable guy, the guy that was, you know, was hard-headed. So for me, you know, that's the one thing I regret is I think I would have gotten more out of myself if I would have just continued to be the guy that I was throughout high school, the guy, you know, the guy that got me to the big leagues at 20 years old. So, now when I see certain kids, I tell them, you know, it's okay to be coachable, but if you have something that works, like, let it go. Let it happen until you get to the highest level. Then we have to make some changes because sometimes, like they say, if it isn't broke, you know, you don't have to fix it. So I think, you know, I'm proud of it now looking back at it. But, you know, there was a point, you know, I think last year coming up on kind of questioning whether or not I was going to continue to do this, I was really like, man, I, you know, I'm going to look back and I just – a little disappointed on what happened. But now when I look back, I, you know, I appreciate just the character that I show. You know, I think people appreciate it. You know, I, I was an all-star, but I was able to play 15 years for a reason. Um, I impacted every clubhouse and locker room that I was in. So I'm, I, now when I sit back, I can say I'm proud of it. Cameron, you uh, are in another career now. And you just talked about all the gymnastics mentally you went through to try to get through your actual on-field career. What did you think of your first year in a broadcast booth? Both you did studio in for two different networks and games uh, for the Yankees. But also, what are you doing to try to avoid what you, you were just talking about? Like trying to hear too much information from too many people and figure out what makes the best Cameron Maben broadcaster. Yeah, I was really lucky this first year in to have the opportunity to work for a network like Yes Network and cover a, a prestigious organization and franchise like the Yankees, learning from guys like uh, Michael Kay in the booth, uh, David Cohen in the booth, giving me really good advice. Uh, uh, Troy Benjamin, the producer, was amazing throughout the year. And then you talk about the MLB staff with you know having guys like yourself, John, uh, Harold, Greg, uh, friends, so many good guys around me that continue to say the same thing, and that's be yourself. You know, learn, 
take notes. Um, this is not easy, you know, what you guys do. And I have a, a huge respect. I had a huge respect when I was a player and I have an even bigger respect now because the homework and the due diligence that uh, the media goes through to try to, you know, put out a, um, a quality story, whatever it may be about a player or what they might be going on. It, it takes a lot. It's not easy. This is nothing that you can kind of freestyle and just do off the top of your dome. So I was very fortunate to be around people like yourself, John, uh, that continue to encourage me. Hey, you know, these are areas that you can grow in, uh, little points and tips and tricks, you know, of the, of the trade that I really appreciate. So um, I'm very, very just thankful, you know, for the opportunity. I'm looking forward to continue just get better each and every year. And I look at it, how was that at the beginning of the year? And where, where was I at the end? And I felt like I really, truly grew. And that's where I'm at, you know. And it's one of those things where I said, let's see where I am five years from now. And let's just see if we can continue to grow, uh, continue to progress, and continue to learn about this business. Because I'm still green as they come. And, and I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm happy and thankful to kind of, you know, be in this avenue now. And, and also to kind of bridge that gap for baseball and the young players and uh, help them understand, hey, the media isn't always, you know, your enemy. The, the, we're not, the, we're not here against you, you know. And sometimes when you develop a, a good relationship, you know, sometimes it, it might be a little, a little less backlash when you have a bad day or a bad week or two. So developing good relationships, I think, for me being a younger guy that so many players are familiar with, kind of giving them that little bit of insight on the media, I think, really helps as well. Yeah, live TV is not easy at all, as uh, you know, but you are a natural, I think, and uh, I think you've done a terrific job in your first year in both uh, new jobs. Uh, you know, you're wearing a Padres uh, shirt, so I know you played for 10 different teams. You know, obviously you follow them all to some degree, but you were with San Diego and uh, the Marlins uh, in, in my, Miami Marlins now for two of your longer stints. I'm wondering, do you follow both teams? They've kind of gone in different directions in terms of how they're approaching things and uh, try to keep it more on the positive side. Are you shocked by the Padres now all of a sudden, uh, one of the two or three biggest spenders in uh, Major League Baseball? Yeah, it, it seems like the Padres, I don't want to say they hit the lottery, but they have a, a big bag of unlimited cash to spend right now. And, uh, you know, watching some of the moves that they're making, I think if you're a Padres fan, it's exciting because I remember spending four or five years out there and it seemed like every time you looked up, John, it was a Atlanta Braves hat or a Mets hat or somebody else coming to visit San Diego Padre game. But now you're seeing the fans show back up and they're, they're enthused. They're excited about, you know, the product that's on the field. Uh, I'm excited to see this lineup. I know there's a lot of talk about um, Tatis being traded. I would love to see them figure out how to fit him in this lineup. You know, hopefully – there's been some maturity uh, as far as, you know, a growth standpoint goes from that aspect. Um, I think having guys like Bogarts around will be great for him. You, you look at what he was able to do with Rafael Devers as far as helping him mature into a, a young man at the big league level. I think having those voices like Manny and, and him alongside will also help, you know, kind of bring him into his own maturity level that is much needed for that team. And, and then we talk about Soto and, and the pitching staff that they just continue to put out. The rotation is heavy. Um, I'm excited about the Padres and what they're doing. I'm wearing this shirt because I also coach uh, a 2026 class of, of young young studs, really really quality group. Um, so so I rock this Padres scout team, which is which is fun for me. Um, I, I get to kind of see the talent that's you know coming down the pipeline, and it's quite a bit. And then but then from another standpoint, when you go over to the Marlins, it seems like they've kind of been doing the same thing for a long time. You know, trying to just kind of stay afloat, tread water, and put out, you know, a, a somewhat competitive product. Um, but when you look at their team on paper, you know, they actually have a competitive 
no offensive team is whether or not they can stay healthy and stay on the field. A lot of injuries last year by a lot of guys that they really thought was going to impact that that division, that lineup. But with new faces, uh, a new culture, you know, new thought process, you know, hopefully the Miami Marlins can get back in there. That's one place that I always said, how can they not put a winning product in Miami? I mean, you wake up, you feel like you're in paradise, you feel like you're on vacation. It seems like, I mean, look, I mean, you know what I mean? It's, I mean, every day you wake up, you know, you seem like you're in a good mood. So that's one place where I'm still trying to figure out, you know, when and how, you know, haven't they put together a winner in a long time? Yeah, no, I'm in paradise. I just heard the uh, fire engines and the cops across the street in Manhattan. Yeah, I'm with, yes. I'm, I'm with you, Joey. It was, it was like 10 degrees yesterday, and then it was like 67, yes, you know, the next day. So I, I don't know what to do. An umbrella, a jacket, shorts. I carry it all in my car. Uh, so look, you know, we we drop on the Yes Network tomorrow, Wednesday about noon. They'll probably have to CGI that out that Padre shirt, but that's okay because on the network, you're always first of all, you're much better looking than me and John. You're always better dressed than us. They're always CGIing out our faces, sitting next to you. So it's it, it's all going to work out. Yeah, they Cameron, can, they can crop it out. Yeah, I, I I can't tell you how much uh, John and I appreciate you joining us on the show. We look forward to seeing you probably in spring training and obviously during the season. Best of luck moving forward as a broadcast. And really, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Guys, listen, I, I really appreciate it. And, and as always, you know, any advice, send it my way. You know, I'm always open ears. You know, I love I love a little constructive criticism. It's what makes you grow. So. You guys keep it going. I love the podcast. And keep, anytime you need me, I'm here. All right, Cam. All the best. Thanks so much. All right. You got it. John, uh, you know, we, you and I are teammates in a bunch of places. We're New York Post, MLB Network on this podcast. And uh, Cameron Maben is our teammate at MLB Network. He was kind enough to join us. As always, he was interesting. What did you take out of the conversation with Cameron? Yeah, I mean, he's a great teammate. And I think he's a terrific young broadcaster, only 35 years old. Uh, I think he will be one of the best before it's said and done. And you mentioned he's a teammate in two places. But he did have a 15-year major league career. And when I asked him about... You know, being a number 10 overall pick in that star-studded class of 2005 and the fact that he came up at age 20 and hit a home run off of Roger Clemens in his game two, how would he look back on his entire career, which, as you said, is 15 years, but he never did become a star. I thought he was very, very introspective and very interesting and how he's come to grips with the fact that he had a nice, productive career and how he expected to be a multi-time all-star didn't get there, but he's able to live with it, be happy and satisfied with what he did do. Yeah, you know, in the uh, interview with him, I mentioned he was the 10th pick. The next pick was Andrew McCutcheon. Do you remember who the ninth pick was? No, but I know there were a lot of good players in that draft. That's one of the greatest first rounds ever. The Mets had the pick. It was Mike Pelfrey. Look, I, I think Maven is one of those guys. He It probably says a lot about, as we discovered both covering him, uh, especially in 2019 with the Yankees, and now working with him. If you're never going to make an all-star team, if you're never going to get an MVP vote, and you're going to stick around for 15 years and 10 organizations are going to want you, probably says something about you as a guy, you know, and, and a good player, but not a great one. We've learned over the time, right, that Cameron is really, really a good guy to work with. I'm, I really am glad I got to ask him the question, the, the ride out to the ballpark, where he went into detail about the modernity of what teams, like teams hire young interns to just watch a pitcher and then write and and write a report along with a video 
about just that pitcher and what he does, like, oh, there's a little bit of a tell. He scratches his nose every time he does this, or he steps with his right foot instead of his left. And he was going on and on about the detail of it. It was a really, and it, I've been, we've been blessed kind of like when we had Bader on, I mentioned a conversation I had with Bader during the year. When we had Scherzer on, I mentioned a conversation with Scherzer. It really is the blessing of our job, right? Like when you have access, you try to use it wise and well and talk to smart people. Yeah, I mean, we've had not to pat ourselves on the back, but we've we've had great guests. Hopefully, this will continue uh, next week and following weeks. But I all mean, through twenty twenty three, right? We're in a new year. Uh, you know, he's obviously a great personality, and uh, as you mentioned, much better looking than than you and I, and helps him in his uh, new career uh, as a broadcaster. We didn't get those jobs uh, through our looks, but uh, you know, he has that great personality. I think that's really the key to it more more than more so than the looks and. Uh, you could see that in the interview. Yeah. You know, one of his jobs is with the Yes Network. Don't forget, uh, we drop uh, on their app, the Yes app, Wednesday about noon each week. We will again this week. Thanks for listening to the show, a podcast from the New York Post. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Don't forget in 2023 as well, give John and I a five-star rating. It means a lot to both our egos and the success of the show. And don't forget, we'll be back this Tuesday. Oh, I already forgot in 2023. I have to go back. I didn't mention Jake Brown and Andrew Hartz, who always make the show possible. Our producers, our great producers. I'm sorry about that. They'll be back with us next Tuesday. I hope you're with us every Tuesday in 2023 moving forward on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heaton.